McClure Report in Weekly Review. Uh, this podcast coming to you on April 10. It's being recorded uh, for this week. Uh, the top 10 list of those articles that the Full Report readers uh, clicked on and read on the Aquila Report last week. And so when you get your newsletter on April 11, you'll have the top 10 list. And we, this is an opportunity for myself, Dominic Aquila, along with Paul Harrell, to uh, just go over some of the highlights of these articles that the Aquila Report readers have chosen. And uh, just to give you a heads up on it and also some start some discussion and with the hope that you will also be glad to uh, share these um, this list with others. Uh, you can forward them to family and friends. Uh, you can uh, just send the newsletter and forward it to them and, and maybe encourage them to be a part of the Pull Report reading audience. So, uh, Paul, uh, it's an opportunity again uh, to come together, how things after the uh, mentioned a tornado last week, how things going since then. Things are much better. I had a great celebration of Christ's resurrection, great sermon out of 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm ready to go, ready to go. Very today. great. Super duper. I'm too. And it's wonderful that we have that reminder, uh, the historic reality uh, in real time, as Francis Shavers like to say, it's true truth and real history. And uh, that's what uh, we have our hope based in uh, the reality of Christ doing what he did in time space history. Well, why don't you read, Paul, the uh, top 10 from 10 to 6, all from 5 to 1, and then we'll begin our discussion. All right. Uh, so we got Jim McCarthy at number 10, worship that is holy and heavy. Coming at number nine last week, Nick Batzig is back. If Christ is not risen, eight implications of denying the resurrection. I think this might actually, yep, certainly this is going to reference 1 Corinthians 15, as I just mentioned. Number eight, we have Michael J. Kruger. Uh, were later versions of Christianity radically different than earlier ones, reflecting on recent scholarly claims. Coming in at number seven last week, Kevin DeYoung back on the list, The Beauty of Biblically Broad Complementarianism. And number six, Are We the Byzantines? This written by Victor Davis Hansen. Okay, then number five, uh, Partial Preterist, Don't Fudge by Larry Ball. Uh, number four by Rosaria Butterfield, why I no longer use transgender pronouns and why you shouldn't either. Uh, number three, a tsunami warning for the Southern Baptist Convention by Virgil Walker. And number two, a time to keep, uh, you see, that was number two, no, the time yeah, to keep silence. Number yeah, number one, uh, a dissenting perspective on the Nashville massacre. Uh, by Tom Hervey, and we start with this one, A Time to Keep Silent, A Dissenting Perspective on the Nashville Massacre. Uh, basically, the, what uh, Tom Hervey is arguing for here is uh, caution and care about uh, jumping in and drawing conclusions uh, and uh, joining, and especially in the digital age when we can um, make a join in comments or uh, sort of give our prognostications or our opinions. He says, this massacre is perpetrated by one person in one place toward one group of people, even granting that we share a faith and formal ecclesiastical ties. There is a case for many of us keeping silent and not presuming to advise or 
uh, do otherwise or to otherwise discuss the matter. And the matter is so awful, even consol uh, consolation can come across as callous, especially when it comes from strangers via digital means. And so he just uh, cautioning uh, that to you know to, to judge uh, something uh, immediately uh, tends to be because of its uh, newsworthiness uh, and how much uh, airtime it takes up, and also how much space on uh, on media it takes up that it uh, can create. Uh, sort of a backlash and maybe things that aren't really helpful. So he says, uh, this affair came to mind referring to something in his, um, when he was a teenager in high school about a matter that took place in his high school. This affair came to mind after the recent outrage in Nashville. And as I watch people fall all over themselves, analyzing, discussing, well-wishing and politicking in response to that sad episode, I am inclined to think that the response of my fellow citizens in the former case is wise, that is referring to this high school experience, and well-suited to the present moment as well. Uh, there's an important difference, and that uh, former case dealt with a tragedy uh, in the form of a ve vehicular accident, whereas in Nashville, uh, a heinous crime was willfully perpetrated by a person as a responsible moral agent. Still, the basic response mm -hmm. in the first case uh, is useful as well. Uh, he says, central to my thinking on this matter are several points. I'll just read a couple of these. Uh, one is not appropriate to one. It is not appropriate to discuss the suffering of others in public. It's a uh, fact uh, rather rude. In fact, rather rude being a, actually a form of gossip, too. Uh, there is such a thing as respect for the dead and for the survivors and the grieving. And much respect includes a solemn refusal to speak in the presence of or about those who have been killed or who have lost loved ones. Uh, presence in our day includes not only real presence, but the digital sphere as well. And I fear that such a respect is in short supply at present, perhaps even among unbelievers. So he goes on and gives some other examples uh, here uh, that um, we just need to be careful about. Uh, and he even refers to Job's friends who sat silently for seven days before they began to uh, speak things. Of course, we know that their speech and what they counseled um, Job was not the, even wisdom. So even after being silent for a period of time, it wasn't good. So they ends up here with um, saying that uh, I have no interest in entering too much into a partisan political discussion of that, but it does uh, much to it does much to reiterate that we as sheep among wolves and that we ought to be diligent in prayer that the ruling authorities will be just and wise and that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And as for the larger matter at hand, uh, let us recognize that it is that this is for many of us a time to keep silence from Ecclesiastes 3.7 and act accordingly. So a uh, good word of exhortation uh, mm -hmm. from our uh, friend uh, Tom Harvey. You know, Paul, you're thinking on that? Well, I certainly, in being in the media, have not stayed quiet on this. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, but that's kind of where I'm at, uh, you know, currently uh, my position. Um, but yes, I understand the sentiment. I also agree with Tom Hervey when he writes that 
Um, there has been political opportunism here. There is uh, there is much in the present case that shows the civil affairs of our nation are in poor state. That is an understatement. Uh, it is the depth of brazen uh, 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 knavishness to use a massacre committed by someone in one of your side's favored groups as an occasion to demand that your own preferred policies be enacted post haste, especially when those policies would tend to make the victims more defenseless against those in other groups that conspicuously hate them. I feel like there is a lot of truth in what he's saying. Of course, he's referring to gun control. Uh, the the you know the blaming of the gun and not blaming the uh, the you know the the trans biological female uh, who committed an act of terror against Christians. So uh, yes, I mean I, it's no wonder this is the number one article among Aquila Report readers. I think a lot of people are are still uh, gripping or analyzing the fact of where we are mm-hmm. as as a country and and in all that um, a lot of this is because. And I've, I've just seen it in covering all of this. There are Christian magistrates, there are Christian legislators, who have gone to the mat, and they have made protect. They've made the idea of the state protecting our kids from horrible uh, lifestyles. They've made that. They put that back in style, where that is now the in the government's purview again, as it should be, and. The response, as as we saw in the news last week uh, out of Colorado, I believe, where they actually arrested uh, another trans who was plotting, uh, had the Communist Manifesto, had his own manifesto, and uh, was plotting to attack schools and churches. Uh, they, they found everything. So this is not an isolated incident, and we just need to be vigilant. So Right. Okay, well, number two, uh, a tsunami warning for the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, This is basically dealing with the egalitarian movement that appears to be servicing much in the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, Virgil Walker uh, speaking as a member of that denomination, uh, and he uses the example of that big tsunami, that 9.1 magnitude earthquake that hit uh, the uh, Japan a number of years ago. In fact, it was in 2011. Anyway, he says those familiar with the region pay little attention to earthquakes uh, due to the infrequency. Many people ignore the uh, warnings associated with tsunamis that result from them. He said so. He said in the same fashion as there is that in the natural order, uh, that in a church order, and especially in the Southern Baptist Convention, they um, they may be disregarding some warnings uh, of their own. So this has been happening. So many in the Southern Baptist uh, leadership pay little attention to the cracks in the denomination's core. The latest is Rick Warren's decision to appeal the Southern Baptist Convention's decision to kick uh, Saddleback Church out of the fellowship. There is a tsunami warning for the SBC. Uh, There are some SBC circles with regard to Warren's uh, commitment to installing three women pastors at Saddleback Church as a clear violation of scripture and the Baptist faith and mission statement. So the he gives one example. He says uh, the one earthquake before was what happened in the discussion uh, going back to 2018 to, on the uh, social justice issue that was in the church. And he 
give some uh, background on that. But in terms of the more recent one, he says, then what about Resolution 9 uh, to Beth Moore, an egalitarian wave? And then he discusses uh, what, uh, why he says, and using this as an editorial piece, why there's an issue within the Southern Baptist Convention that is arising. And so the question is, then who is a pastor? Uh, how is that determined? Uh, at issue is the wokeism and questions surrounding women's roles. Uh, Rock the evangelical world. Rick Warren of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, took uh, to social media in May of 2021 to celebrate the decision to ordain three women uh, pastors. This decision to go public did not go unnoticed in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, uh, see the um, credentials committee, which decides if member churches are in healthy cooperation with the denomination, was under pressure to break ties with the Saddleback uh, with Saddleback Church, and many people saw Warren's decision and subsequent social media posts as a direct challenge to the BFM, that's the uh, uh, the faith and mission. A commitment of the Southern Baptist Church and scriptures, which hold only biblically qualified men should be pastors. So the tsunami warning, warning then, as Warren, he says, as Warren considers the landscape of the Southern Baptist life, he determined to fight for people like Andy and Stacy Wood, who are the uh, clergy couple. Uh, during the Russell Moore podcast, Rick um, Warren spoke of having clarity rather than confusion on the subject of women pastors. And Warren shared with the audience the three verses that uh, convinced him that women could uh, be pastors. Uh, one of them is Matthew 28, uh, 18 to 20, the, which is the Great Commission, of course. Uh, the second is Acts uh, 2, 17, 18, the account of the day of Pentecost. And then the third is John 20, where he tells the story of Mary Magdalene as uh, she follows the angel's instructions to inform the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. So all that uh, here, Virgil Walker says, is going is creating a wave. It's an earthquake with um, the resulting tsunami that's coming, and he predicts it's not going to end well if it continues in the trajectory that it's now going. So in the what is at least arguably the largest Protestant denomination in the country, uh, the trembles, uh, the the shaking, and then the tsunami appears to be on the outset, at least according to this article by Virgil Walker. Uh, yeah, you know, this is just another um, example of, you know, what happens um, in, in this. It's really a, a slippery slope, and we, we've seen what it happened. Just like we talk all the time about how a side B church will inevitably become a side A church. You know, you can take this back, uh, you know, to looking at the mainline denominations and the historical um I guess you would just say uh, this about the, the, the sufficiency of Scripture and whether or not the Bible really means what it says it does, in spite of what the culture says. So as the rise of feminism, uh, you know, became more and more prevalent, then you you had more and more churches saying, you know what, I I think we can make officers or women, we can't allow women to be officers in the church, and then that just eventually leads to the next compromise on what. Uh, what the Bible says. So here is this is good. It's a good article, and it certainly the SBC does need to be warned because it, whatever concessions happen, it's not going to stop here. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, the another one that is uh, creating uh, uh, earthquake and tsunami uh, is still the the next issue coming around the corner, and we're seeing it in every kind of direction. Is the transgender movement? So when you consider the LGBT, the T is transgender. Uh, then you have the Q plus plus plus, and so there are others that are still to drop. But here it is, an article by Rosaria Butterfield, why I no longer use transgender pronouns and why you shouldn't either. And uh, she wrote this in um, Reformation 21. She says, a civil war erupted within broad evangelicalism, and the idol of LGBTQ plus is dividing the house. Uh, the issue uh, is personal, political, and spiritual for me. In 1998, I became one of the first crop of the so-called tenured radicals in American universities, proudly touting my lesbian street cred. In 1999, Christ called me to repentance and belief, and I became a despised defector, a defector of the LGBTQ plus movement. But a progressive sanctification came slowly, and I have failed many times during these past decades. After I learned my lesson, she says, I have earnestly tried to course correct. My use of transgender pronouns was not a mistake. It was sin. Public sin requires public repentance, not course correction. I have publicly sinned on the issue of transgender pronouns, which I have carelessly used in books and articles. I have publicly sinned by advocating for the use of transgender pronouns in interviews and in public uh, questions and answers. And so she uh, goes on to explain a few more things. And she said it was basically the Supreme Court decision in uh, uh, Obergefeld in 2015 that began for her rethinking this whole thing. Uh, and so then she comes up with a list and says, now having you, how is using transgender pronouns uh, pronouns sinful, you might ask. Okay. And then she gives a long list, so we won't read them all, but just so that you'll have a sense about this and why she has um, changed her mind on it. In fact, this is her letter of public repentance. Uh, she says, using transgender pronoun is a sin against the ninth commandment, which is you shall not bear false witness and encourage people to sin against the 10th commandment, which is uh, you shall. Um, be content in yourself that he does not covet your neighbor's uh, issues and which has the idea of being content and satisfied. Uh, number two, using transgender pronoun is a sin against the creation ordinance. Uh, using transgender pronouns is a sin against image bearing. Uh, using transgender pronouns discourages a believer's progressive sanctification and falsifies the gospel. Using transgender pronouns cheapens redemption, and it tramples on the blood of Christ, and on she goes. And she said, ends this list by saying, I repent. It stands alone as a paragraph, and then she goes on, says, the broader evangelical church disagrees with how I paint this picture. Uh, psychologist Mark uh, Yarhouse and author Preston Sprinkle summarized the Christian case for transgender pronouns. They believe using a transgender pronoun is respectful of someone's choice, uh, chosen identity. It's a kind of courteous uh, and necessary for continuing a relationship with a transgender person. 
uh, says, I once sinfully said all these things too, but this position makes no Christian sense. Uh, does any real Christian believe crafting a relationship on falsehood will give the gospel a better hearing? And is uh, that how people are converted by meeting God on sin's terms and hearing nice things about themselves? And she goes on to argue, no, that's not the way the gospel is uh, actually heard. So she um, ends up by saying uh, Christians who use the moral lens of LGBTQ plus personhood are not merely a, quote, soft present, close quote, in the enemy camp, referring to uh, the Israelite camp uh, with Achan in it and how sin came into the camp. Uh, their malleability makes them putting in the evil's in the evil's hand, and they make false converts to a counterfeit gospel that bends the need to a fictional identity of LGBTQ+. This wolfish theology seeds the moral language uh, to the left by using transgender pronouns as a moral lens, uh, that is respect, uh, courtesy, hospitality. They reject the clarity of the word of God and replace it with garbage. By doing so, they have rejected the gospel's truth that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Heidelberg question number 30 puts it this way, for though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus as the only delivered uh, and as deliverer and savior. So her point here is that she says, God, forgive me. Uh, would anyone like to join me at the very end? She puts that. Uh, so here she's saying the clarity of the gospel, the fact that uh, the evil one loves nothing more to bring confusion uh, is a cause for us as believers and out of genuine love for those in need, whatever the sin may be, whether it's in the LGBTQ+, whether it's in any other area of sin that is a part of the uh, cultures, uh, sort of the context of where it is publicly, uh, we need to realize that the gospel speaks light into the darkness, and uh, by accommodating to the darkness, we don't have clarity. So we appreciate very much um, how uh, Rosaria has publicly repented and then also instructed, given direction, helped us appreciate um, the, how we need to be clear and positive and affirmative with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is very helpful, I yeah. think, in terms of the categories that Rosario has provided us here, Paul. Yeah, no, it really is. And uh, just absolutely, I'm so thankful for her and I'm thankful for this. Um, this is, there's just so much wisdom in this. Um, and when she says that my use of transgender pronouns was not a mistake, it was sin. You know, it wasn't it doesn't it's something that just needs a course correction it, and it was sin. It needs to be repented of. And so after you read that whole thing and you read her her reasons why, which her reasons why it violates different commandments and, and why using these transgender pronouns is a sin. Um, if you go back to the top, uh, the very beginning and you reread this sentence, a civil war erupted within broad evangelicalism and the idol, the idol of lgbtq plus is dividing the house uh this is it it really is um an idol i'm glad she used that word and uh, when we worship idols uh, we we must repent of worshiping those idols 
Right. And so this is a great article. I saw it. This this is actually I, I saw first saw this not on the Aquila report. I, I saw it on uh, I guess there was a YouTube video that popped up in my feed. Somebody was covering this. And uh, that's when I first made aware. And I thought to myself, I was like, oh, this will be on the Aquila report for sure. And sure enough, here it is. So um, anyway, great article. Great. Well, going along in that same theme uh, is the uh, number four, the deep heaven of the gay gods. Now, there's a reason that quote that uh, comes from a C.S. Lewis provision. I'll just quote in a moment. The deep heaven of the gay gods. Uh, this is by Zephram uh, Foster. Uh, the modern fairy tale of science is uh, disordered. Uh, he refers to the uh, C.S. Lewis's The Hideous, Hideous Strength, um, <clears throat> the trilogy that deals with same themes as um, other uh, more robust, you know, uh, with uh, the do- doctrine of sin and Satan in a more robustly Christian manner. The pivotal than the Jurassic Park, because he just dealt with that. I should have pointed that out. The pivotal character, uh, chapter 13 in the book, The Hideous Strength, is entitled, They Have Pulled Down Deep Heaven on Their Heads. And so in the title, he picks that up, The Deep Heaven is Pulled Down on Their Heads. Uh, The title alludes to the scientists of the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. Not a great title, uh, Paul. Uh, It uh, spells out NICE, uh, N-I-C-E, the the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, who, much like the scientists of Jurassic Park, have endeavored to manipulate the natural order in a way onboard from traditional guidelines. Lewis's central thesis of the book and of also of the abolition of man uh, is that the pursuit of knowledge without a moral framework is the sin of Babel. You go to chapter 11 of uh, uh, Genesis for the tower. We all know about the Tower of Babel, but the sin of Babel, its attempt to pull ourselves up to the gods and and uh, sort of the focus in the way Moses wrote it, he said, uh, "Let's build a tower that reaches way up to the heavens." You know, it's a uh, it's man's attempt to get to God and to set the uh, framework about how to deal with him uh, and how to uh, engage with him. That hideous strength display is no uncertain in no uncertain terms that when we attempt to pull ourselves up to heaven, all we do is pull heaven down on top of our heads. And so again, the title, the deep heavens of the gay gods, that is being pulling down heaven with all of its judgment on the head. And uh, in this, this uh, Zephram uh, Foster then puts this in a category again of light and darkness of uh, what the devil uh, uh, really is doing. And um, he, he makes some very interesting comments here in this article that reads uh, just Uh, readers, you know, just ponder uh, carefully. It says, Satan desires human destruction and being the father of lies will feed lies to innocence, hoping for their downfall. Uh, Let's be very honest, he says. There is nothing Satan could desire more for the youth of the Western world than for men to exchange the natural sexual relations with women for homosexual ones, for them to deny essential characteristics about their created state, for girls to unnecessarily cut off their breasts and inject themselves with poison, 
to treat their body like a suit of meat uh, with interchangeable parts. Uh, Satan rejoices in seeing young boys and girls, the younger the better, being exposed to uh, sexual material, being told they are sexual beings from uh, birth, and that their lusts define their identity and behaving as if their genitals are a vertebral belt that can be changed to match the day's outfit. Satan is pleased to see children in schools being taught the sexual choices and actions are entirely detached from morality and are no more than personal preference, like whether someone prefers their potatoes mashed or fried. Satan rejoices in the fact that doctors are telling children that they can attain perfect happiness, that can be a, they can be content and they can be accepted if only they would let him carve them up into pieces and make them unrecognizable. Satan loves to see children torn limb from limb in the womb. He loves death and any culture that promotes it. That's quite an amazing uh, statement. Um, and he goes on to say that Satan lies. He lies by telling a young man that he can be a woman if he simply asserts it. Uh, he lies by telling girls that womanhood is nothing more than the idea that can uh, morph into a suit uh, anyone wearing it. Uh, Satan lies by telling girls that if they uh, aren't having luck attracting boys, they should uh, try other uh, girls instead. After all, they'll be accepted uh, that way. Satan abuses the disconnectedness of the modern world and exposes the lack of true community by providing a fall community in the sexual movements, identities, and groups of the LGBTQ um, movement. Uh, Satan loves to deceive, and he loves especially to deceive children. There's nothing more demonic than convincing a young girl to permanently alter her body as a living sacrifice to the gay gods of that heaven, and it's calling heaven down on them as a result. So a uh, very helpful article here puts it in both a cultural and biblical context. It puts it into the, also the, the spiritual warfare context of not just our personal putting on the armor of God, but more the cosmic understanding that, that in the heavenlies, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, um, uh, 12, that the battle is taking place with all of the demonic hosts in the heavenly places in Christ, not just here on earth, uh, but up there in those places where uh, true the, the, the spiritual world is at stake and the battle is taking place and raging for the hearts of, of, of culture. So really good article. I appreciate how Zephram Foster has put this together and trust it will be helpful to um, us as we read it. Yeah, I, I liked how uh, he described the NICE acronym um, and, and what Lewis's novel did here. It makes me want to uh, go read this book that I have never read. Um, the NICE in Lewis's novel take orders from a severed human head through which a being they describe as a macrobe issues commands. The goal of the Institute was to transcend human experience. They hated the messages, or I'm sorry, they hated the messiness of unclean, uh, un, uh, uncleanness of biological life. They much preferred the moon to earth as it was clean, scrubbed of all growing things. They wanted to scrub the earth clean in the same way to create a sterile environment that could be detachedly and, and uh, coldly ordered to their whim. 
because the rational modern scientists of the Institute didn't believe in primitive superstitions like demons, they were perfectly willing to take orders from them as long as they called them macrobes, which, of course, they are macro natural is simply a polite and materialistic euphemism for supernatural. The nice, the N-I-C-E, pulled the gods down upon their heads by committing the same sin that occurred at Babel, trying to pull humanity up to heaven. Lewis sums this up beautifully through the words of Ransom when he says, the hideous strength holds all this earth in its fist to squeeze as it wishes. But for their one mistake, there would be no hope left. They have gone to the gods who would not have come to them and have pulled down deep heaven on their heads. So I think this article is a great, Dominic, in that it compares this scenario to what's going on with the mutilation of our children. But as I was reading this fictional book, this this part, this description of the fictional book, this is closer to truth today than it is a fiction. And what I mean by that, if you go and actually read what these humanists say at places like the World Economic Forum, the experiments that they are, in fact, doing with transhumanism, uh, you know, their uh, obsession and belief in extraterrestrial life on other planets. All of this stuff is is dictating a a godless scientific community uh, that are they are obsessed with this union of of uh, biology and technology. And essentially, they are working on a, some way to download human consciousness into a computer. And I, anyway, I I know that's not the point of the article, but it was just it just struck me hearing this what Lewis wrote here, and I actually have gone and read these documents by these mad scientists here, and they're actually doing these experiments right now. So anyway, interesting. Very good. Um, number five is by Larry Ball, partial preterists, don't fudge. Uh, the was he's reacting to and responding to an article uh, that ran a couple of weeks ago on the Aquila Report by Dean Davis uh, entitled Preterism, Exposition and Critique. Uh, and uh, there are two types of preterism. Preterism is the what comes gives us the word past, uh, how to view the end times. Basically, it's one branch within that all the end time theology, eschatology, um, and their different uh, different views with uh, one of them being uh, preterism. There is partial as well as full. And each of them, without going into the details right here, uh, you can read on the original article, which is hyperlinked in the article by Dean Davis. So the uh, but what Larry Ball is arguing for is that uh, in the, Mr. Dean's are the, arguing that par, preterism alone, whether it's partial or full, is wrong. That uh, he, that Larry Ball is arguing that partial preterism is not inconsistent with a full and right understanding of a reformed eschatology, a reformed doctrine of last things. And so he is giving another or a counter uh, to that and explaining uh, in a very brief way what the, this all means. So the uh, partial preterist hermeneutic defends from the scripture the default eschatological positions of our confessions unless the words and the context of a particular passage demand otherwise. Partial preterism is not follow ground for the uh, that must of logic 
logical necessity bear the fruit of full preterism, which everyone does that holds to all the other positions other than full preterism believes that full preterism is uh, heresy and uh, not orthodox, that no one uh, more than reconstructed has ever uh, led theonomous into the theological deviation of federal vision. He's saying he's arguing against that. Uh, it was an error to infallibly assert that theonomic federal vision connection years ago, and likewise, an error to assert it even now. So uh, basically, this is almost an insider baseball thing, but it's important because uh, we are all concerned, of course, about the whole idea that Jesus is coming again. Uh, and there is great debate and division within the evangelical church. We, um, many places do practice eschatological liberty. That is that we don't demand in many denominations that you hold to one or the other, but there are certain limits outside of which you cannot go. And there are things within the limits where there can be earnest and honest uh, debate. Uh, so Larry Ball in this article, just basically saying, Partial preterism properly understood is within the context of and consistent with the confessions and the views within the Reformed Church. And so we commend this to you. And there are links within it where you can read further on. And so, Paul, um, I know that we chatted about this when we went through um, the, the Dean's uh, article before, uh, Dean Davis's article. And um, so we just come back again because it is something that's of great debate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's and it is kind of uh, popping up and there's a lot of efforts to uh, the, the full preterism views seem to be popping up. And there's rightfully so uh, an effort to essentially uh, squash it and highlight how unbiblical it is. Right. Well, so we just commend it to you. And I think you'll find enough reading material on that just on clicking through some of the hyperlinks in the article. Uh, number six, we are the we are the Byzantines. Uh, this is by Victor Davis Hansen. And uh, this article um, is uh, one of Victor Davis Hansen's uh, uh, sort of reviewing, as you know, if you've heard him lecture or speak um, on TV. He's comment, uh, usually come, uh, asked to be a commentator on things to give a historical perspective. And he especially is um, an expert in the area of uh, the early history of mankind and the Greeks, the Romans, and uh, early uh, wars and battles and drawing application implications. So the Byzantines, of course, were part of the culture in the eastern part of the church, uh, Turkey and that area, Middle East, and a, a very grand and glorious one. It was sort of Constantinople, which was the headquarter of the capital city of the Byzantine Empire, uh, was the Rome of the uh, east, and uh, Rome was the Constantinople of the west, I guess, uh, if you want to put it that way. And it was able to last until uh, May 29th, 1453, the Byzantine Empire and its capital had survived 1,000 years beyond the fall of the Western Empire at Rome. So Rome itself had already gone belly up as far as being uh, a major uh, capital city of the Western part of the whole Roman Empire. But uh, Constantinople uh, stood strong. By the way, I just, uh, Paul, in just uh, talking about this, uh, the date 1453 is a unique uh, date, not only for uh, the uh, the Ottoman Empire 
defeating the Byzantine Empire and taking over Constantinople. Uh, but that's the year that uh, Gutenberg uh, invented the printing press and which had a radical change, made a broad radical change into now you could actually print things up without doing everything by hand. So it's interesting that the uh, while in the eastern part of the old Roman Empire, uh, the Byzantine was falling, uh, Constantinople was falling, uh, that in Germany, Gutenberg was uh, developing and had developed the printing press. So it's just a little factoid there. It's not in the article, but I thought I'd just bring that out. The uh, What um, the, Victor Davis Hansen is vo saying here is that this was sort of the, the Constantinople was sort of the, the crown jewel, as he calls it, of the empire uh, great a lot of brilliant scientific advancement engineering gave the empire advantage like swift galleys and uh flamethrowers and ancient uh, precursor an ancient uh, precursor to napalm a law reigned supreme for nearly a millennium uh, after the emperor justinian codified a prior thousand years of roman jurisprudence so it was just it was flourishing uh but it all of a sudden a, a town, a city of 800,000 citizens had only 50,000 inhabitants by the time it fell. There were only 7,000 defenders on the walls to hold back a huge Turkish army of over 150,000 attackers. And so once the lovely city uh, now been taken over, and one of the things that was done, and it, you could still see it today if you travel to that part of the world, is that uh, the Islamic winners took over the once mad, uh, magical city of Constantine and renamed it Istanbul. It had been the home of the renowned Santa Sophia, the largest Christian church in the world for over 900 years. And almost immediately, the Church of the Holy Wisdom, that is the name Sophia being the Greek for wisdom, was converted into then the largest mosque in the Islamic world with minarets to follow. And you can still see that uh, even uh, today. So what he warns is that with all of that background, the, he says the last generations of the Byzantines had inherited a global reputation and a standard of living that they themselves no longer earned. They neglected their former civic values and fought endless battles over obscure religious texts, uh, doctrines, and vocabulary. So instead of earning money through their accustomed nonstop trade, they inflated their currency and were forced to melt down the city's inherited gold and silver fixtures, and on it would go. And so finally, he says, like the Byzantines, maybe Americans have become a snarky iconoclast, more eager to tear down art and sculpture than uh, th uh, that they no longer have the talents to create. So current woke dogma, obscure world word fights, and sanctimonious cancel culture are as antithetical to the past generations of World War uh, II as the last generation of Constantinople was to the former great eras of the emperors Constantine, Justinian, Heraclius, uh, and uh, Leo. So it, the Byzantine never woke up in time uh, to understand what they had become. Warning just from history, if you look at trends, uh, what might happen in the West itself. 
Uh, so, Paul, it's always a good thing to read history if we can learn from it before it take overtakes us. Uh, yeah, to batten down the hatches. Uh, I mean, I feel the only thing left to do for us is just to, you know, get in, get in a bunker. Um, an ascendant, he writes, an ascendant China seems eerily similar to the Ottomans. Beijing believes that the United States is decadent, undeserving of its affluence, living beyond its means on the fumes of the past and very soon vulnerable enough to challenge openly. And I think we're already there. Uh, China's president over the weekend, actually, not only has China brokered peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now, if you're listening to U.S. media, you have not heard that headline, but that is huge. Not only is China a part of BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and now Saudi Arabia has applied. Uh, there's a myriad of other countries that have applied to this new competing financial order. When it's all said and done, they will control or it'll be they will represent over 50 percent of the global population and over 40 percent of GDP. That's what's at stake here. That's what's going on. And if you want to know why war is going to break out, it'll be to try to prop up our uh, fiat system. Um, so not only is China saying that we're decadent, you also have Putin who says that pedophilia is a now a Western value. Uh, which if you look at how all of these multinational corporations in the West, as well as our own government, every institution controlled by the left is promoting is promoting the sexualization of our kids. What other reason to promote the sexualization of kids other than pedophilia is there? And so you, you look at it and you look at who's got the moral high ground. And admittedly, it is gray. It is gray. I mean, China's not benign. We know what they do to our brothers and sisters over in China and the underground churches that go that, that are that are. Uh, uh, that exist over there and the persecution that happens. And now the persecution that's happening here, the violent persecution that's happening here, it is a changing world right now. And, um, Victor Davis Hanson is absolutely correct. I mean, while we're, why we are distracted right now, whether it's weather balloons from China, whether it's a, a, a trans person on a Bud Light can, whether it's the indictment of Donald Trump, while all of that is going on and we're all focused on that, China has secured peace between the Sunnis and the Shias and Iran and Saudi Arabia. And the, the de-dollarization of the world is happening. And if all of those dollars who are get dumped and they come back into our country, we will see hyperinflation, the likes of the Weimar Republic. And nobody is talking about it except for people like Victor Davis Hanson who are saying, hey, look, we may be the Byzantines here. Right. Always good to look back in history. Well, let's go into number seven is by Kevin DeYoung, The Beauty of Biblically Broad Complementarianism. The broad um, complementarianism. What he means in this article here, he says, uh, let me define, he says, uh, scripture, uh, let's see, the, uh, but I want to help us see from scripture, I hope that is that biblical manhood womanhood, though it is uh, what it is, that it's more than that. Some people have begun to use the language of narrow or broad complementarianism. A narrow complementarianism uh, uh, might say this. Uh, yes, we see that there are differences between men and women, but those are rather narrowly constrained and confined. And the husband is to be the head of the household from Ephesians 5, and the woman ought not to be elders in the church uh, or elders and pastors from 1 Timothy 2. Beyond that and beyond the specific realms of those leadership dynamics within the house and within the church, there isn't much else that we dare to say. Okay, That would be a narrow complementarianism. 
A broad complementarianism would be one that says, while those things are true that we just read and fundamentally true and perhaps fundamentally clear, there are other things in scripture which indicate to us that being a man and being a woman cannot be simply defined according to a few rules in the church and in the home. In other words, there is a broad conception of what God means when he creates us as male and female. So it's that that uh, Kevin DeYoung takes on is that uh, definite defining the broad uh, explanation. And he does it in a number of categories uh, so that uh, he talks about appearance and body and character, demeanor and eager posture uh, that um, he uh, refers to. He talks about these various components, different parts uh, to say that that. God has brought these distinctions in all these areas between the male and the female, and then he puts it together with reference to how things ought to be read and uh, understood. So in closing, he says, we don't want to just uh, perpetuate stereotypes. As soon as you make the biblical, uh, you make that the biblical standard, you're going to have a son or a daughter or a husband or wife or a friend who doesn't fit at all. And yet in an effort not to perpetuate stereotypes, some of us go too far and say, well, the Bible doesn't really say anything about this, just men as pastors. No, I hope from scripture that there are more and uh, see that there is an oughtness uh, to manhood and womanhood. And there is a difference, a difference that should not be eradicated, but celebrated, not confused, but clarified, not shamefully embarrassed, but happily embraced. And yes, the culture winds are blowing very stiff and very strong against the church when it all comes, uh, uh, it comes to all of this. And yet the good news is, there is uh, at our back a massive river of divine design that actually is flowing in this direction because it is how God made us to be, uh, to be, and how He we can flourish as men and women made in His image. So uh, it's an intricate article goes into a lot of detail before that little conclusion I just read, but I think it'd be helpful to read it might solve some of our problems that the beauty of broad uh, complementarianism uh, and how we're to understand it. So Paul, I really think this may be uh, one of those things that we all can benefit uh, meditating on thinking about. Uh, we like to talk about, you know, small group meetings, having discussions in the home uh, about how men and women are made, how they created an the image of God and how they, uh, how that applies in the, uh, both our family life, church life, and cultural life. Yes, I, I like how he uh, he warns about the stereotype, but then again he says, but then the, the other side of the ditch is, you know, you're, you're going to try to avoid stereotypes and essentially, you know, deny reality. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of, I agree with the general statement that stereotypes exist because they are reinforced every single day. Uh, in front of a watching world that makes assumptions going forward. <laughs> so uh, I, this is a this is a really good article. It would be good for a small group. Yeah. Okay. The next one by Michael Kruger uh, were later versions of Christianity radically different than earlier ones, reflecting on recent scholarly claims. And uh, he defines uh, Michael Kruger does here. Uh, by early Christianity, I don't mean the Christianity 
represented by the major figures in the fourth and fifth centuries when the church had risen to power, for example, Athanasius or Constantine, Augustine. Rather, I'm referring to that uh, time period immediately after the apostles, mainly the second and third centuries, when Christianity was still in its infancy, struggling to find its way in a hostile Roman world. And so he's referring and reviewing some books that have come out recently. He says recent books covering this uh, critical period and sometimes more periods include Rodney Stark, The uh, Triumph of Christianity, uh, Larry Hurtado's Destroyer of the Gods, My Own Christianity and in the cross, at the Crossroads, and Bert uh, Ehrman's The Triumph of Christianity. So why all this interest? He says, I think... Uh, scholars are realizing afresh something that we have always known, namely that the vitality of the later and fuller version of Christianity is dependent at least somewhat upon whether its core features can be traced back to the earlier stages of Christianity, representing the second and third centuries of uh, the development of the church right after the apostolic age. And if this cannot be done, then uh, it can be shown that there is a radical gap between the two, that is, between the apostolic age and then jump over second and third and start in the fourth and fifth centuries. Then uh, we might conclude that Christianity arose uh, to dominance uh, is not the real Christianity at all. Rather, it's just a man-made construction born of political or uh, politics or power or just random chance that is not of sync with the earlier and more authentic version. So going through and uh, looking at these books and what they are proposing, he does some scholarly uh, uh, looking at those who have spoken about this in the past and written about it. And so what he says uh, is in the conclusion, for those interested in the formation of the earliest Christian movement, after Jesus, before Christianity, will be fascinating to read. It offers a number of provocative claims that will surely elicit reflection and curiosity in the reader. And it does uh, make some helpful points that need to be made. For example, early Christianity was more diverse than we typically think. Women were valued in the early Christian movement. However, time and again, the author seemed to push well beyond what the evidence can bear for a volume that claims to be working with an open mind and not assuming anything, uh, it seems to reach a remarkably predictable conclusion that uh, this happens to fit in with a pre-existing paradigm of Walter Bauer, that's referring to a 19th century uh, German historian, that has been in the place for nearly 100 years. The volume claimed to be that of a potential to rewrite history. Well, in a sense, it has done that. It has rewritten the history of early Christianity. The question, however, is whether that new version is more accurate history than the one that we had before. So if you want to chew on something that uh, takes you back in history, forces you back to look at the second and third centuries when a lot of things were happening, the uh, canon was being formed uh, in the life of the church and so much else, um, it's, uh, it'll stir your heart, your mind, um, your historical cur curiosity, uh, Paul. It's not the um, faint for faint of heart. You have to really plow into um, you, how that second century church especially uh, handled itself in the midst of uh, a very strong, well-oiled uh, you know, Roman history and how did it grow in the midst of all that.
Yeah, you know, for the interested in the formation of the early the, the, the conclusion here, for those interested in the formation of the earliest Christian movement after Jesus before Christianity will be a fascinating read. It offers a number of provocative claims that will certainly uh, elicit reflection. I'm familiar with some of these claims, and <clears throat> I, I would be interested to read the book. I would be interested to read uh, the the uh, more, I guess, what would you call orthodox view, because I think a lot of people uh, – and I know this sounds general, but I, I think this idea, this concept that early, early Christianity uh, being so different than uh, Orthodox uh, Christianity is is used as a way uh, for lone wolf Christians to say that they don't have to find a church to belong to. Um, I, I really see that as one of the reasons why people are, you know, are, are pushing this issue and are trying to, you know, are trying to somehow form a wedge or disconnect uh between you know the early church history and that time you know immediately after uh immediately after you know jesus uh went to heaven so i don't know what what do you think dominic i mean are you are you familiar with this as well it's obviously yeah. not a new controversy no no and it's been around for a, a good bit of time and it um if you're looking at at, at that development of time after the apostolic age as something that was a more man-centered, uh, uh, critical, you know, a data, um, then you don't you don't see God superintending His supernatural providence, uh, guiding the church during all those times. Uh, like I said, the second century was so significant, and uh, Kruger writes about it. In fact, has a book on it in terms of the development of the canon, uh, the Scripture. How did we get our New Testament? How were those 27 books chosen? Uh, how did the church do it? it just something as simple uh, as the Apostles' Creed uh, developed during that second century as a way of binding the Christians together before they had any major church councils and so forth. They said, what is it that we believe? And notice it's a Trinitarian uh, a creed. Uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ's only begotten Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so there you, you see that the early church was Trinitarian at base, and it puts enough data in there because there were a lot of false prophets that were going around teaching things. And not every local church had all the manuscripts that we now have, uh, that we call the New Testament. And until they all could have it and could read them or have them read and the preaching and so forth, they said, if you're a true Christian, here is, in terms of belief, here's what it what it means. So that's during the second century. They had to, you know, wrestle through this. Plus, they were dealing with all of the issues of a Roman system that was very anti-Christian, uh, contrary to everything about it. The, and their numbers were minuscule compared to the whole population that existed. Um, and even though their numbers were growing, uh, and the, regardless of the uh, the threats and the power of Rome, uh, nonetheless, it was still uh, important. So a lot of positive things that happen uh, in terms of how do we live faithfully in the midst of a very uh, contrary culture. We think we have it bad today. We don't understand at all what those early believers had in terms of the being uh, seeing seeing as weird um how can you worship a god that's invisible you know everyone had statues and um images 
uh, and they just couldn't understand it. So it's very important to go back and see what effect laying the foundation in those second and third centuries did for the life of the church, even till the present day that we live in. Okay, well, let's go into number uh, nine is by Nick uh, Batzig. Uh, if Christ is not risen, eight implications of denying the resurrection. So what is at stake if we deny the resurrection? And so he basically says, well, here is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, where he has a number of um, you know, considerations, you know, if eight of them, in fact, uh, if clauses, you know, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But number two, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Okay, number three, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Number four, uh, we are even uh, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He uh, raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it is not if it is true that the dead are not raised, number uh, six, five, and if uh, six rather, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Number seven, if in Christ you have no hope in this life. If uh, we of all people are to be pitied, and if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So the, this just answers that. And so basically he comes up with, well, look, uh, there's an apostolic message that's very clear. There's a living redeemer as a result of the resurrection. Uh, the efficacy, that is the power of the apostolic word. Uh, is proclaimed. There's the uh, trustworthiness of the apostles, the forgiveness of sins, the everlasting hope, and so forth. So it's just a very helpful um, way it's structured here by Nick Botzig and uh, to help us say, no, the, the, the Apostle Paul laid out very carefully. And remember, when he wrote Corinthians, he was writing to a predominantly Greek or Gentile audience who was still wrestling with this whole concept of resurrection, which was new to the culture. And so they were wondering what it all meant. And by explaining it as he does, he's drawing them into the whole uh, understanding from the even the, the Old Testament. And the Old Testament proclaimed the resurrection of the dead. And he starts out 1 Corinthians 15. He says that uh, we proclaim to you as a first notice that Christ died according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised according to the scriptures. So you need to say, well, that means if according to scriptures, what the scriptures at that point, the only ones they had was the Old Testament, and that was already put together. So he's building on that to say, what according to the scriptures then are we to believe with reference to the resurrection of Christ, which is a uniquely biblical and Christian uh, thought. I'm so glad in the last article you mentioned the apostles creed because and in, in, in that this article is on first corinthians 15 because first corinthians 15 has a verse in it a few verses in it that really is the first version of that creed if you go to first corinthians 15 i mean this is a 
this is a big verse, uh, 15 uh, verse 3, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I mean, that right there is uh, very much, you know, Christian, what do you believe? That is very much an answer to that question found in scripture, and then that's extrapolated out, and uh, and like you said, in the third century, we, we have uh, the Apostles' Creed. Um, I also, in Again, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I just heard a sermon uh, on on Resurrection Sunday about First Corinthians 15. It was just it just it struck me this part in uh, 15, 17, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 18. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. I mean that that to me is if there is no resurrection, you're still a sinner. You're still in your sin. That to me was something that um, many of you may find it elementary uh but to me it was just one of those moments where i i really reflected on that that's uh that's a powerful powerful statement and it really shows just the the importance of the of the resurrection hmm, that's good okay number 10 from uh, jim mccarthy uh worship that is holy and heavy and by heavy he's talking about the presence of god in the cloud which is a Kavod, it's a heavy cloud. Um, he says, uh, God saves us, uh, saved us to make us worshipers. Thus, the obsession of a regenerated heart should bring a God as a as a uh, offering uh, in view of his mercy. But how do we know what will please him? We search the scriptures. Uh, when we do, we find that the Lord loves his own word. And throughout the uh, Bible, worship is filled with God's word. Uh, read, sung, confessed, prayed, preached, pictured in sacraments, and responded to with tithes and offerings. We dare not come to God in corporate worship at any of our of um, but His terms. And so that the idea of using uh, Nadab and Abihu from Leviticus chapter 10, uh, when these men uh, came and they were sons of uh, Aaron uh, with their own um, canister and their own uh, uh, incense uh, with what was uh, a fire that was not uh, approved by God. And so it was sometimes called a strange fire. Uh, so looking at what happened uh, between Nadab and Abihu and what uh, took place is um, he says uh, in Exodus 30, we read that the altar of incense stood in the holy place. Uh, where the curtain uh, into the Holy of Holies priests were commanded to burn fragrant uh, incense upon this altar morning and evening as a picture of the prayers of God's people ascending to heaven. Not just any incense would do. God gave Moses a specific recipe. Take sweet spices, stacte uh, and uh, anisha of uh, galabum, we, uh, sweet spices with pure frankincense, all of which shall be in equal parts and make an incense blended by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. That's from Exodus 30. What's more, he demanded that this holy incense be used exclusively in worship and threatened bootleggers with uh, exile. Perhaps God's recipe bored Nadab and Abihu. Maybe they wanted to spice things up in the tabernacle and try something new. Whatever the reason, they brought 
incense that uh, God had not commanded, and they brought him a strange fire. So Nadab and Abihu, it says here, uh, teach us not to worship God on our own terms, but on his. He is uh, he is our guest on Sunday. Um, he is not our guest on Sunday. We are his. We all too often discuss the debate about worship swirls around the question, what uh, do I like? But one question ought to dominate all liturgical conversations. What does God like? Does God uh, the, does the God that made us and saved us by the blood of his son uh, not have the right to regulate his own worship? Does our loving Heavenly Father not have the authority to instruct his children in heavenly worship? God saved us to make us worshipers, make worshipers of us all. So it's talking about um, making sure that we understand what God commands as we come to worship him so that we know him as he has revealed himself in the in the word. So some very helpful uh, comments in this article by uh, Jim McCarthy. Uh, absolutely. He did a great job. Good. Okay. Well, that's uh, the top 10 articles in the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. And we're so glad that you've uh, been a part of our podcast uh, today, April 10, 2023. Uh, tomorrow on the 11th of April, you get the newsletter and these articles will be hyperlinked ready to be clicked on so that you can quickly read through them and hopefully uh, as you do they will stir your mind and your heart that you'll feel free to think and through to have a small news discussion to uh, forward them to family and friends uh, and just so that it will be something that prompts us uh, to grow together uh, as these articles week by week uh, stir us in different areas both to uh, how our affections are directed towards God, how we're to live faithfully in this world, and basically also to have a good understanding of the history of the church and culture so that we can be faithful in that as well. And so until we meet next time, uh, we ask God's blessings to be on your life.